0: Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, Trailhead Church, um, happy birthday. We're three today. Isn't that kind of cool? Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) Tonight, um, I want to invite you to join us. We, each year on our anniversary, um, I like to call it a birthday, but we we meet down at the Wildy and um, we do a worship night. And so I want to invite you out tonight, six o'clock, Uh, We're going to have the full band out and um, really going to rock it. And so, um, come worship with us because I, you know, as I thought about it, I really couldn't think of any better way to celebrate um, what God has done and is doing in our church than to worship Him. And so, it's going to be a lot of singing um, and a lot of joy. And so, join us tonight, six o'clock at the Wildy. Make sure you show up at six. Don't don't show up on trailhead time. Show up on on real time um, because we are going to start at six and. you don't want to miss it, okay? Five years ago, um, I had the great privilege of coming over to the Metro East and, and stepping into a failed church plant, um, and, and I led about 30 people out of, out of that failed church plant, and, and we started something new. We launched something new, and, and I, was, I was at the time an elder at The Journey, uh, a church in St. Louis, and, and we started The Journey Metro East over here in Edwardsville in 2008. Two years after that, God was doing incredible things. Um, we grew and lives were being changed and it was very clear that we were growing into a very independent identity. And so with the full blessing of Darren and the journey, um, we were sent out in January of 2011 to launch this Trailhead Church. And, and we, the language I used to describe it is very simply, we grew up and we moved out of the house, right? We, we, we got to the point where it was time to move out of our parents' basement and stand on our own two feet. And so we did that in. In January of of 2011, and over the last three years, um, it has been a tremendous privilege to lead in this church and to be part of this church, uh, as we have just seen God's grace do incredible things. Lives changed, um, people rooted and grounded in community, marriages saved, um, all kinds of just incredible things as God has worked um, in and and through our community. Today, we get to take another very important step in... um, our journey uh, as a church, as we continue to move toward becoming a local autonomous church, something that's going to um, be a, a grounded, rooted in this community and grounded in this community and, and really outlive us, um, we're moving into a, a pretty important phase of our life. This morning we get to recognize our first elders. Um, 1 Timothy 3 1 says, This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, Scripture talks about uh, basically aspiring to the character of an overseer. Now, the Bible uses several words, overseer, uh, elder, shepherd, pastor, interchangeably. These words all refer to a specific group of people within the church that he has called and commissioned to lead. And when you read through the New Testament, what you find is that um all the churches in the bible the early churches were led by by what we call plurality of elders a, a group of men who were called out to lead in the church and we want to follow that model the, the new testament's our model for for our church governance for the way we lead our church and so we are an elder led member um engaged church right so so we don't our, our elders lead and, and and of course we do it of course with the full engagement of the members of our church up to this point We have been led by uh, a provisional board. It's been myself and two pastors, John Ryan and Bob Bickford. They're pastors at other churches, um, people that they they, they believed in, in me as a church planter. They believed in Trailhead as a church in Edwardsville. And so they partnered over the last three years with me. And they've been a source of encouragement and wisdom to me, of accountability for me. They've helped me navigate really tricky waters at certain points. But we get this morning the opportunity of celebrating the fact that we're actually transitioning from a provisional board a temporary board of leadership to really the permanent board where um, we get to install the first guys that we've raised up through local leadership. Uh, It doesn't mean it's the last. Uh, We believe the Bible calls us to continually be training and raising up leaders and that God will continue to raise up leaders in our church. Uh, But we do get the opportunity of recognizing our first. With that, I want to invite Dan and Clint up here. Uh, A year and a half ago, uh, we actually had three guys begin the process: Dan, Clint, and Skip. Uh, as we announced in a letter uh, at the end of last month, um, Skip has discerned that God's basically telling him to wait, and so this morning we get the privilege of of um, basically commissioning uh, Dan and Clint. A month ago, we sent out a letter basically asking for public comment, and um, this ends a, a year and a half process where these guys have been theologically trained, challenged. They've read books, they've written papers. I have uh, drilled them and asked them questions. They have helped me um, navigate really tricky um, shepherding issues. Here's the thing. When you you read through the New Testament, the the description of the elders, one of the primary words used for them is shepherds. The word that we call pastor literally means shepherd, somebody who walks among the sheep. Uh, we don't see eldership as this thing where we just get a bunch of businessmen together and they sit in a back room and they make wise financial decisions. We do need to make wise financial decisions, but the biblical model for elders are people who are among the sheep, who know, who lead, who feed the sheep and love them. And these guys have over the last year and a half demonstrated a heart for this church. They have grown in their competence. They have been challenged in, in, in their training. Uh, they have demonstrated their character and, and they have earned my respect. And uh, it's been a great privilege. I, I love these guys. Uh, we meet together every single week um, to pray and, and to talk strategy and to talk about people's lives, um, to, to uh, help solve problems, to discern how God is leading. And um, uh, it's, it's a great privilege to be able to introduce you guys to them. Um, and so this is, I mentioned their names. This is Dan right here. Say hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. There you go. This is Clint. Say hi, Clint. Hi, Clint. All right. These guys are now um, joining me in the leadership of this church. It's, it's really a very significant day in the life of our church. I'm going to pray for them, pray for our church. Why don't you pray for me, uh, pray with me. Uh, so as we pray, Father, we thank you um, for this church. We thank you that you bought it, you raised it up, you're leading. We thank you, Jesus, that you are um, the senior pastor of this church, the senior shepherd, and that, that you have given us the privilege of being under shepherds. Uh, I thank you for these guys. Uh, for Dan and for Clint, um, and their love for this church, the way you've shaped them, the way that you are molding them in grace for service and leadership. Uh, Father, we pray, rich blessing, that we would have wisdom, discernment, boldness, gentleness, that, um, Lord, you would continue to uh, guide this church, and and that you would expand um, the influence, that we would see the gospel reach out to transform more lives, Uh, impact the character of more people that we ourselves would continue to be transformed by this beautiful message of love. Lord, bless this church, and we know you already have in Christ, and so we simply claim what you've already given and ask, Lord, that you would make your name great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, you guys, this morning um, we get to start a new sermon series. I don't know any better way to launch um, our fourth year of being a church than to spend some time meditating on thinking about grace. Grace is the heart of the gospel. Grace is the heart of our message um, as followers of Christ. Uh, grace is an easy word to define. In fact, we define it often. It very simply means undeserved or unearned favor, right? When, when, when God or even people give us favor or benefit or we don't deserve, we didn't earn, um, in fact, we fall sh- well short of earning it, but they give it to us anyway. It's grace. It is a favor that is, that is not provoked or earned by us. It is simply given as a gift, right? It is when someone um, gives us what we don't deserve, right? So it's, it's an easy word to define. But the reality is it's a much harder concept to understand. It's a much harder thing to actually experience it and center our lives around it. Than it is to talk about it. Like much of what we discuss in regard to God, it's often much easier to talk than to live. And 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 this is why, you guys, because grace honestly just doesn't make sense. I mean, it really it really doesn't make a lot of sense. We can we can define it, we can explain it, but it is counterintuitive. See, karma honestly makes a lot more sense. Karma is a. a, a a word that we get from Buddhism. It's a a religious concept that very simply means that, that you get what you deserve, right? You reap what you sow. You put out good, you get good back. You put out bad, you get bad back, right? We understand this concept, and the reality is we operate within it because it's real. It's not just an idea. It's something we see every single day, right? That idea that you reap what you sow, you get what you deserve. The physical universe itself is centered on this idea, right? Every action has an opposite and equal reaction, right? That's, that's the, very simply the, a physical manifestation of this concept that, that when you do something, there is a result, a consequence. You get something back, right? The moral universe seems to be centered on this concept as well, right? If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad, right? I mean, these are, these are lessons we learn, um, not just from childhood, from moral training, but we get it from the human story itself by simply watching people, right? We all know that, that people, when they do bad, even when they do it in secret, it often comes around and unravels all the good they've done. When you do good, you get good. When you do bad, you get bad. That's karma, it's a, it's a concept that we honestly believe in very deeply, and we follow it. In fact, parents, you, you probably very actively teach karma to your kids. Let's just be honest, right? What do you tell your kids? You tell them, if you want people to be nice to you, you need to be nice to them, right? If you want to get, you've got to give. If you want this result, you have to invest. You reap what you sow. Um, Christmas is a great season. We just finished the Christmas season. It's a great season for karma, honestly. Santa Claus is the king of karma. Think about it, right? The the One of the most important hymns celebrating Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, right? He's making a list, and he's going to check it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice because Santa Claus is coming to town, right? You guys, it gets even creepier. He sees you when you're sleeping, (laughs) right? He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake because Santa Claus is coming to town. Here's the thing, you guys. When the king of karma comes to town, it is bad news for everyone. You know why? Because if we really get what we deserve, it's bad news. It's bad news. It really is. If we get what we deserve, it's bad news. Because reality is we all know what we deserve. You know the public image you put up. You know how you want people to perceive you. You, want, you know what, what, what you want people to think about you, but you really know who you are. In fact, you know who you are better than anybody else. You know all your hidden secrets. You know all your hidden jealousies. You know all your hidden rivalries. You know all your hidden insecurities, all your hidden fantasies that you would never bring out into the light of day. Crazy stuff, right? If you really get what you deserve, it's probably not going to be great news, right? But the reality is we expect karma to work because that's the way most of life works, which is why grace is so surprising, which is why grace is so unexpected. When we expect to get hammered and instead we get love, What an unexpected, delightful gift. We all love to get grace. We also tend to resent it when other people get it, right? It's really scandalous when when so-and-so gets grace and you know they don't deserve it, right? We love to get it. We hate to give it, which is part of our evil heart, let's be honest, right? Grace, it is unexpected, But here's the thing, you guys. While none of us deserve it, we all need it. There is no more powerful force in the world than grace. You know why? Because grace is love. Grace very simply is the expression and the experience of unconditional, unearned love. And there's no more powerful force in the universe than love. We were created to give and receive love, to be centered on love. And in fact, without love, there is no meaning and no purpose in life. Love is the whole purpose. Grace is our invitation back to love. And the God of the Bible is a God of grace. In fact, grace is the, the heart of the message that we call the gospel. The gospel is a word that simply means good news that there is a proclamation of a God who has done something for us we couldn't do for ourselves, and it is a message of grace, of unearned, undeserved, lavish, extravagant love. Grace is a continual invitation to a fresh start, a new beginning, a clean record. Grace is an invitation to re-experience love. Even when we don't feel like we deserve it, we've been closed off to it, or it's been removed from us. Our passage illustrates what I'm talking about. So let's take a look at Hebrews 4, because what I want to do is unpack this a little bit and explore, um, really, the beginning of this series, this idea of grace. Starting in verse 14, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There are a lot of ideas right there, and I can't unpack them all, but what I want to get to is this idea of priest. We read through that. A lot of us are are probably not real familiar with the concept of priesthood. Now, the book is called Hebrews uh, because it was actually written to a group of Hebrews or Jewish people. So when they read this, they would have immediately understood the context of what he was saying. When he talked about Jesus as being a high priest, they would understand that he was, in fact, talking about the Old Testament priesthood. The Jewish life revolved around the temple and the priesthood that operated in the temple. In fact, the temple was the way you approached God. There was no approaching God outside of the temple. It was the way that you reconnected, in other words, with the source of love. Because God is love and we were created to experience his presence. And so they saw the temple as the heart of their culture, of their religious life, of their social life. It was incredibly important. Now, Herod's temple, uh, which was the temple that would have been in place in the New Testament, was a big, sprawling complex. It was this beautiful building set on a hill. Uh, it was the center town, right? So it wasn't just the center figuratively of Jewish life, it was in fact the center. Of, of um, everything they did. There wasn't a week that would go by that you wouldn't go to the temple. It was part of your, the regular rhythms of your day, right? Now, here's the thing. When you see the temple, I think you see some things that are very important about understanding grace. When you would come to the temple, you would find that there would be a series of courtyards that would allow you to approach. Because remember, coming to the temple was drawing near to God. Coming to the temple was your way of, of reconnecting with God. And as you would approach, you could only get so close. So on the outer circle, um, the outer wall, was the court of the Gentiles. Now, Gentile, the word Gentile, simply means someone who's non-Jewish. That's most of us, okay? Um, I'm, I'm, I got Jewish on one side and non-Jewish on the other, so I'm a Samaritan. Um, but I could still go to there. But that's as far as I could go, okay? I could go to the court of the Gentiles. I could draw near, but that's as near as I could go. Now, if you were Jewish, you could, go, you could go closer, right? The next court was the court of the women, okay? So Jewish women could go to that court, and beyond that was the court of the men. Jewish men could go to that court, and, and yes, that's sexist, but we'll just leave that for now. We want to unpack that, okay? But yes, let's admit that. And then beyond that was the court of, um, of, the, of the, the priesthood. And so you could draw near. If you were a priest, if you were uh, a Jewish male who was, in fact, uh, of, the, of the tribe of Levi, you could go into the inner court. And in the inner court, um, that's where all the activities of the temple took place. So, so they were busy in there uh, tending the table of showbread, lighting the incense, offering the sacrifices. They did that on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and they, they did all of this in the inner court and in the first room of the temple itself what was called the the holy place. Now, there was one more room. It was called the Holy of Holies. And it was separated by the holy place by a thick curtain. And only one person could go in that room, and and, and they could only go in once a year, and that was the high priest. The high priest could go in once a year to offer um, the daily uh, sacrifice of atonement on the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of the very presence and glory and power of God. Here's the thing the closer you drew to that inner court, the more gravity accompanied it. In a sense, the more danger accompanied it. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wore bells around the base of his garment. They were not just decorative, you could actually hear him moving around in there. And if the bells stopped ringing, you couldn't go in and check on him. So they would tie a rope around his ankle. Um, just in case he got struck dead. (laughs) They could pull him out, okay, without anyone else endangering their life. What does all of this communicate? What what does all of this represent to us? Does this represent that God is, in fact, a God of karma, that, that the better you do, the closer you get, and the worse you do, the farther you're kept away? It's really not, actually. The message of the temple is this. God says, I want you to draw near, but you need to be careful doing it. I want you to draw near. But there's something that separates you from me that is, in fact, dangerous. And that thing is, is called sin. Sin, very simply, is the state of our offense or rebellion against God. See, see the temple reinforces this. Not, not that God is like Santa Claus, the king of karma, but, but that God is so absolutely holy that anyone who is less than holy is in fact endangered by his presence, not because he's wrathful, but because he's pure. And like pure fire, he consumes anything that is less than himself. And so he creates this buffer zone where he says, draw near, but be careful. And when you draw near, you must draw near with sacrifice because that sacrifice communicates that you recognize there's a blood guilt on your head. You are at least acknowledging that you are unholy, that you are coming into the presence of a God who is pure. See, the message of the temple very simply is this the temple simply told the truth. And the truth is, we don't measure up. God sits on a throne of righteousness. And on that throne, he must judge the criminals. And the temple very clearly communicates that we're all criminals. We're all criminals. Now, we're not as bad as some, but we're worse than others, and that's how we like to look at it. We're always comparing ourselves with others, right? I don't lie as much as that guy. Let's be honest. We all lie, but we like to look at people who lie more, right? I don't lie as much as that guy. I don't cheat as much as she does. I'm not as jealous and obviously manipulative as that person those things may be in me, but, but they're not in me to the extent that I see them in him or, or her. And so we like to compare ourselves with others. And what ends up happening is, is we tend to focus on our strengths and compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses. And in so doing, we make ourselves feel really good about ourselves. The challenge is when you come before God, you're not compared to the people around you. You're compared to God, who is the absolute measure of perfection the measure of all that is right. And when we're compared to Him, we all fall short. When when we're compared to that standard of, of righteousness, we're all sinners. We're all rebels. We all seek to rob God of His glory, to rob Him of His authority and make ourselves the center. When we're put before a perfect standard, we all fall short. And what the temple taught was this, you need a mediator. You need a mediator to come into the presence of God. You need someone to represent you, to take you in a sense into the presence of God, someone to stand between you and God. When Jesus came, he came as that mediator. He came as the perfect high priest, the last high priest. Because he didn't just go into a temple that represented the presence of God, he went into the very presence of God. And he didn't take the blood of bulls or goats or lambs or animal sacrifice, he took his own blood. He was the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. Because he was our perfect substitute. He lived the life we should have lived, the perfect life of righteousness. He died the death we deserve to die, the death of, of shame and rejection. The death of one who was a cosmic traitor against the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe. He died in our place for our sins. And when He rose again, He rose again not just for His victory, but for ours. He was the last and perfect high priest, offering the last and perfect sacrifice to make the last and perfect payment for our sin. And the good news says very simply that when we believe in Christ... All of our shame, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our mistakes and willful rebellions are left on the cross. And all of His righteousness, all of His goodness, everything that that makes Him glorious is ours. Because He was the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice, we are offered perfect, absolute, unending grace. It's grace. It is an undeserved Unearned status of grace, and because of His work on our behalf, we can approach God with confidence, not fear. Would you compare that? You know, because look at this text again, Hebrews four. The, the Jewish experience: when you approached God, you could draw near, but only so near, and even then, you had to do it with a certain level of fear and trembling, because you were an unrighteous person coming into the presence of the of absolute righteousness, the sovereign God of the universe, right? But look what he says in in verse 16. Let us then, as followers of Christ, those who have believed in Christ, been covered with the righteousness of Christ, let us then with confidence draw near, with boldness draw near, without hiding draw near without beating ourselves up to make ourselves worthy, draw near. Without earning His favor, draw near. Without performing or improving or doing anything to make ourselves worthy, draw near. And what do we draw near to? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A throne is a position of authority. It's a wonderful thing to sit on. It's a really hard thing to sit under. Huh. We all love to sit in the throne, of a th- in the throne, right? Because what that means is we get to be the boss. We get to make decisions. We get to meet out discipline. We get to decide what is right. It's really hard to sit under because it means that we're going to be measured by an external uh, measure. And, and we have to, to perform and measure up, which is why a throne of judgment is such a terrifying thing. Whether it is a job review or, or um, you're trying to measure up in a relationship, when, when someone is judging you on your performance, it can be a terrifying thing because they're, they're not just measuring what you do. They're, and sometimes it feels like they're measuring who you are, right? To draw near to a throne is a dangerous thing. But notice we're being called to draw near to a throne of grace, which is very, very different. Let me ask you something. When you picture God... I'm going to ask you to visualize a little bit, and I know for some of you, you're like, dude, I'm totally non-creative. I don't visualize anything. Just put up with me for a minute, all right? But when you see God, let's say you come before the throne right now. What's the expression on his face? What do you see? I mean, I'm giving you permission. Close your eyes, whatever you need to do, but, but approach, like, visually. What's his posture toward you? What's his attitude toward you? What does His face say to you? To be honest with you guys, when I do this exercise, which um, it, it, this was actually one of those epiphany moments for me when I realized how I was actually picturing God. I often pictured God as angry. Not, not like flaming, I'm going to pour hot lava on you angry kind of like the quiet anger that says you don't measure up. I often see in God's face a look of disappointment. A look that says you could have done better. I expected more of you. It's a hard place to be when you're coming. Nobody likes to face some of, someone who, who is disappointed in us, especially when we know we deserve it. And in fact, some of you right now are running. <laughs> you're running, running, running from somebody or a group of people that you have disappointed and you can't bear the look on their face. And you look at God and you see that same look on His. You guys, when you do that, here's the epiphany that I had. When I do that, I'm coming to the throne of judgment not the throne of grace. I'm forgetting that Christ bore my judgment in my place. And because Christ bore my judgment in my place, I come to a throne of unconditional, unending, absolute love. I'm not approaching under the weight of my sin and my failure. I am approaching in Christ's merit. And that completely changes the picture for me. Instead of coming and sitting under the eyes of a father who is disappointed and angry, I'm invited to a table where God is eagerly waiting for me to sit and have a conversation. And the look on his face is a look of anticipation and joy and even delight. Not because I have earned it, but because I'm coming in the merit of the one who has. And he's simply waiting for me to receive his love, to delight in his delight, to play in his presence. Have you ever pictured God as playful, as delighting? Scripture says that He he sings over us and dances over us. Have you ever pictured God inviting you into the dance of His love? The delight of His presence. Not because you've earned it, but because Christ has earned it on your behalf. You stand Grace. See, it's like I'm coming to the temple, but instead of having to to earn my way through the levels of approach, I'm invited to the back door where I get to come in and there's a table where he's relaxed and smiling and laughing. And I'm invited to sit with him and enjoy his presence, even as he enjoys mine, not because I've earned it, but because he has chosen to give me a merit, not my own. It is intimate. It is joyful. It's love. Here's the thing, you guys. The throne of grace has just as much power, just as much authority as the throne of judgment. The fundamental difference between them is that we approach the throne of grace when we realize that Christ has already been judged that he was my substitute, that he took my condemnation. And because he took my shame, I stand in his dignity. Because he took my condemnation, I stand in his acceptance. And I'm fully, unconditionally, unreservedly invited into the very presence of the God of the universe. I can come boldly claiming it as my right, Not because I've earned it, but because Christ has earned it on my behalf. And to think any less is to think less of the sacrifice of Christ. When you believe in Christ, in grace, your old record is washed and a new record is given. And with that comes a continual, never-ending invitation to a new beginning. A continual, never-ending invitation back to the table for a fresh start and a new empowerment. It is forgiveness and power. I want to give you guys another definition of grace. Grace we talk about as being unearned or undeserved favor. This is an acronym that, that when I heard it, man, it has just stuck with me since. Grace, G-R-A-C, God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's the thing about grace, you guys. It is absolutely free. If it weren't free, it wouldn't be grace. You get that? Like if you had to earn it, it would be a wage, not grace. Like if you have to earn God's favor, if you have to, to work, become religious and work hard and do things to make God love you, that's not grace. You're... you're, you're doing a labor, and he owes you a wage. Grace is a free gift. It is free to you. God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, God's delight is absolutely free to you, but it is not free. Grace always comes at the expense of the person who gives it. That's true in human relationships, and that is true in our relationship with God. When you seek grace in a relationship with somebody, you are asking them to give you what you don't deserve. And often that means they're the ones that have to pay the price, either emotionally or physically, for your failure. And when you get it, it is delightful because it is an expression of love. And what I'm saying is when, when we approach God, it is free to us, but it comes at a great, a dear price to God Himself. It is God's riches, unending, unreserved. And they're ours freely because they came at Christ's expense. Now here's the thing, because we've all experienced grace in our human relationships, we tend to translate that to God. And here's, with, with people, you always find the end of grace, don't you? <laughs> you always find a way to get on that last nerve. You know what I'm saying? Like it's there and you know it's there and you know you're getting close to it and you know when you're on it. And a lot of us honestly spend our, spend our time in our relationship with God wondering when we're actually going to find the end of the field of His grace. When will I find the fence? When will I step too far? When will I exceed his ability to forgive or to love or delight? The field of God's grace is limitless because the work of Christ is infinite. Because Christ did his job so well, our acceptance with God is infinite and absolute. While human grace always finds an end, God's does not. It is a unlimited supply of love and patience and power because God's riches know no end. You simply can't reach the end of it. And this is why it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It it is unlike any other kind of relationship we've had. And, And grace Is something that we discover and rediscover. And it is a continual surprise. Everything we know teaches us to believe very simply that you reap what you sow, that you live in a world that is ultimately governed by karma. And here's the thing with grace. It is surprising because it breaks the cycle of karma. It says, I will give you what you do not deserve. I will give you credit that you have not earned. Grace covers for us when we fail and it covers us when we feel shame it gives us power to change to endure to rise again when we think we can't does god want us to change absolutely god wants us to change but god doesn't want us to change to earn his favor God doesn't want us to change so that He can finally sit down and look at us and say, now I'm impressed. Now you've measured up. Now I'll delight in you. He wants us to change, not for His acceptance, but from it. That's a phrase we use a lot around here. But like so much else, we we often fall into the trap, I know I do, where I'm saying the right words and not living by the right principles. Grace is the most powerful force of change in the universe. God wants you to change, not so you can earn his favor, but so that you can live in his delight. And grace is the very thing that can change you. Otherwise, all you're doing is rearranging the furniture. You're rearranging your moral life. You're shifting this behavior for that one. You're putting a stop on that one and putting this one in a cage and and you're trying to put self-effort over here and you're doing this and you're doing that. And all you're doing is, is trying to clean up the mess. But your heart's not being changed. See, that's when we're working for, acceptance. Grace has the power to actually change your heart. And that will change your behavior. Not because you need to deserve God's favor, but because you already have it. There's no more powerful force of change in the universe than love. And I think we often undercut the power of God's love in our lives by simply not seeing it for what it is. Unreserved, unconditional, absolute, infinite grace. Grace doesn't define us by what we've done. It doesn't define us by what's been done to us. It sees who we are and it calls us to be who it's declared us to be. God's grace never gives up and it never fails. And as we move through this series, I'm going to share with you some stories of of people's lives who have been impacted and absolutely changed by the grace of God. I'm going to invite you into that process as we look specifically at how grace frees us from behaviors that are enslaving us, empowers us to to rise again from sorrow or, or shame, how grace is a never ending, continual invitation. To a new beginning. To very simply sit down and once again re-experience the delight of God. For now, I'm going to ask us to go spend some time in reflection. I'm going to put some questions on the screen and ask you to pray. And let God speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment, but before we do, let me just pray for us. Father, I thank you that um, you are a God of grace that you give us what we don't deserve and you don't give us what we do. We thank you that Jesus was our substitute, that he took the judgment that was our due, that we might be covered with his character, his righteousness, his glory, which was not our due. What an incredible, incredible message of love. Father, I pray that you'll store our hearts that we might once again just simply be astounded at grace, that we won't be content with having right theology, as if you could be reduced to words, break our hearts of our pride, our self-sufficiency, of our shame, of our self-protection. Let us hear the invitation to full, unending, unreserved life.